Welcome to the Andrew Young School Podcast, where each month we interview a member of the Andrew Young School community who embodies the school's charge to think ahead and innovate in the fields of criminal justice, economics, public policy and management, social work, and urban studies. For our February episode, we spoke to Natasha and Thaddeus Johnson about how they balance co-authoring research, co-teaching, and navigating academia as husband and wife. Natasha Johnson is a faculty member in the Department of Criminal Justice and Criminology at Georgia State University. She also serves as the director of the MIS program in Criminal Justice Administration. She received her Doctor of Education from Georgia State University's College of Education and Human Development in May of 2019. Thaddeus Johnson is a PhD candidate in the Department of Criminal Justice and Criminology and a senior fellow with the Council on Criminal Justice. Thaddeus received his master's in criminal justice from the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga in 2016. Prior to his master's, he served as a law enforcement officer in the state of Tennessee for seven years. Natasha and Thaddeus have been married for 11 years. Together, they co-authored Deviance Among Physicians, Fraud, Violence, and the Power to Prescribe with Dr. Christina Policastro of the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. They continue to conduct research together and co-teach courses in the Department of Criminal Justice and Criminology. So I'm here with Thaddeus and Tasha Johnson. Thank you both for sitting down with me today. Thank you for having us. We appreciate it. So first things first, can you tell us the story of how y'all met? Oh, this is fun. All right, so I guess, I guess I'll start a little bit. Good, because right. we met on a cruise. Yeah, so we met on a cruise, <laughs> and uh, it was a friends and family cruise uh, for me. We had about six or seven friends and family on my end, uh, and then... A cruise I wasn't supposed to be on. I was, should have been working, saving money, uh, and we didn't know each other. And then this was April 2008, and I was there for spring break with all my teacher educator friends. And yeah, it, it's so funny because I actually met mom first on the dance floor. Yeah. Day one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you two look alike, so it was funny to meet you the next day and for you to introduce me to your mom. I'm like, mom, that's my friend <laughs> on the dance floor. So. Yeah, and so we've been, that was, what, 11, 12 years ago? It was 12 years ago now. I can't believe we're saying that. Yeah. Just celebrated our anniversary uh, on January 1st. 11th 11 years, so we've been rolling ever since. Congratulations. Thank you. So after the cruise ship, did you know that you were both coming back to Atlanta, or how did oh, that he come was, He was headed back to Memphis. Yeah, I, I was, was back in Brooklyn. Yeah, I was doing policing in Memphis, uh, and uh, she was in Brooklyn in education. Yep. And I think uh, that was in April when we had the cruise. She came to visit Memphis for Memorial Day. Yes. I went down that summer, and she moved to Memphis in uh, that September. And we got married that following that January. January. <laughs> so it didn't, didn't take much, much time. Uh, I think it kind of knew when we met each other that we were going to try to make it work. That's amazing. So you've started this new relationship. You're traveling back and forth, doing the long-distance thing. When did you realize that you had this shared passion for social justice? That that was our first conversation, right? I want to say that. Yeah. Because he was already a ranking law enforcement officer, police captain, police commander. I was a teacher, guidance counselor, at the time assistant dean. And so I'd say we were already living it, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, and we were both a little kind of frustrated with the, the amount of change we can make in our positions as far as societally. Uh, felt constrained by the, you know, the, um, the politics of, of policing and education, the... Uh, uh, a lot of the bureaucracy and things like that. And uh, we were just talking about that, particularly the group that we dealt with were uh, disadvantaged uh, populations. I mean, I, one thing, one reason I left policing was because everybody I arrested 
they looked like me. They had the same backgrounds I had. Uh, she also talked about how uh, she worked with the special education population, yes. right? And, and nothing like learning about social justice and action on the job. Uh, again, teaching primarily special ed populations, uh, serving communities in which I always saw a disconnect between the people in positions of power and the people who were subject to those in positions of power, families, uh, my students, communities they serve. And so even as I was rising through the ranks from teacher, uh, it's why I got into counseling in the first place. It's why when I saw an opportunity to align with the dean's office, I jumped in because I always saw it really as a, a way to do and be more, particularly for populations who are underserved and populations who look like me. Yeah, and, and, and she told me one story uh, that was particularly interesting, how I knew her heart. Uh, she was talking about um, she was teaching the middle school, and there was one particular student who asked her a very personal question, a very personal response, and the bell rang, meaning that the next group had to come in. And uh, when she told me that her heart went out because she didn't have time to spend with that student, uh, we both knew there was time to leave our professions and try to figure out what it was we wanted to do, but do it together. And that brought you here, right, to the Andrew Young School? Well, it wasn't a straight line. Let me put it that way. <laughs> We're going to get here eventually, but it wasn't a straight line yeah, then. We, yeah, we, uh, we left the country, moved to Jamaica. She's a, a family Jamaican. We lived in right. Jamaica. <laughs> I went back to school online and completed my, bas my bachelor's. Uh, we came back to the States uh, for grad school in Chattanooga, where she got her EDS in education. I got my, master, my master's in uh, criminology, and then, then we got here in 2014. <laughs> right. Yeah, so, yeah, that's, that's about... Ten years in a, in a, not five <laughs> in a minutes. nutshell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, Jamaica, Chattanooga, you've been everywhere. <laughs> what made you decide on Atlanta and the Andrew Young School? So this was specifically what we 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 were in Jamaica and in. 2014, we came back to the States for the purpose of furthering our education. Uh, Thaddeus, as he said already, he had completed his bachelor's degree online, but needed to come back to the States uh, to go to UTC, University of Tennessee, Chattanooga, to complete his master's in criminal justice. And I found the perfect program there. So here we are at the same school already. I'm working on my EDS and instructional leadership. And while we were there, you really said, because at, at the point of my EDS, it's a practitioner uh, terminal degree, and I, I knew I had command of the K-12 through space, and that one question you asked me, if not now, then when? And this was about journeying to the doctorate. Yeah, and, and I did not have an answer to that question. Yeah, and Ashley, the department chair at the time at, Georgia, at uh, University of Chattanooga, Tennessee at Chattanooga, mentioned Georgia State. Uh, she had a great relationship with some of the people who were in the uh, department at the time. Uh, my mentor, uh, Dr. Christina Palacastro, who was actually the first PhD graduate from uh, the criminology program here, here. Uh, she was my mentor, and she uh, really was telling me more about Georgia State. I knew a lot of the names down here, you know, Richard Wright, uh, we had uh, Leah Daigle, you had uh, uh, Vulcan Tapali, you had a lot of names down here, Timothy Brezina, that we wanted to work with, and so that was one of the things. And it's, it's Andrew Young School, come on now, it's Andrew Young. I, I grew up in Memphis, uh, the two names are Dr. King and pretty much Andrew Young is what we grew up with, so just honored uh, to, to be, have a school that bears the name, uh, but in particularly, um, it was almost a pipeline there, it was almost like it was meant to be. Um, and right up our alleys, I mean, we were in Chattanooga, and so, about once a month or so, we were coming to Atlanta anyway to hang out, to visit, and never then did we think that we'd be making this move here. And so, yeah, it's supposed to be. Yeah, we came down for open house, and we just fell in love with the AYS school, with the uh, the faculty. It just really felt like an extension of home. Um, 
really had a social justice mindset. Uh, we really are impact, a big on impact and policy with our research. And so it just really, uh, I guess the stars aligned, I guess, to, for lack of better terms. Right. And even then, here I am in the College of Ed and Human Development. You're at AYSPS and every conference, every all, the publication, including our book mm -hmm. out there, uh, we always made sure we created opportunities, regardless of whether or not they existed, to, to work together. Yeah, and I will say this was a thing that was so interdisciplinary. Like, a lot of places just, this is our discipline, this is all you can do, never show you ever uh, go outside. And AYS was like, knowledge is knowledge. And Georgia State has a sense of service that where our research is applied, where we're not just sitting around pertificating, where we actually can see that our research made a, matter, uh, made a difference. And that's one reason why we, the main reason why we chose here. And that why we're still here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I want to get into your research, but first, I'm curious, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are curious, how do you maintain a relationship when you're both in graduate school? <laughs> Having one partner in graduate school is hard enough, right. but you're both doing it at the same time. How did that work? That's a good question. <laughs> so one thing you hear people say, oh, you're just so lucky to have a partner that uh, has the same concerns, a partner who's going through the same thing. And if I'm I like, had a dollar for I'm like no, it's double the crazy uh, <laughs> is, is what it is. And so I will say we had a pretty strong relationship before we even started this path. I think that really helps. Uh, we share common interests and it's a lot of support, but I think it's sometimes uh, what was left in our tank for support, we did see issues with that and just really understanding and communicating, listen, this is what we're both going through. It's, it's, it's highly stressful, but we always kept our eyes on the prize. We had a goal that was extended past the couple of years we had to deal with the graduate school training. Yeah, the, the win for both of us is we got married in 2009 and then we actually started the this leg, I would say, of the school journey in 2011. So not fly by night, right? Definitely no fly by night journey. <laughs> and right, alignment came in the, in the form of being in school at the same time at different institutions then getting to the same institution, then getting to the same department. And, and so that's been pretty much incrementally what we've been working on for, yes, nine years now. Yeah, and, and I will say, too, that even having those common goals and interests, so we were thinking of things beyond our household, beyond ourselves. For instance, when we were in the classroom and we're teaching and we, and we see students that look like us and we see the impact that we have on those students with the conversations with students from, uh, from uh, disadvantaged backgrounds. They'll see professors that look like them and say, hey, what about grad school? And they're having conversations they never had about it. So I think those joys, even though it can be challenging, I think that was part of it too, was the, the real-time rewards, the real-time difference that we could see that we were making. And so that made it a lot easier to focus less on what we were going through and focus more on the, the common goal. And even co-teaching, the co-teaching model was something we implemented before we got here. And so that's really been instrumental as well. And students, they see one, then another one walks into the room, there's two of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's yeah. just... That's really been a, a more than just a bonus. Yeah, yeah. Being able to share the, the classroom space. Yeah. And you don't find that you're constantly working. You don't bring it home. Oh, it's finding the balance yeah. is still. That's still been the the that's been the the recent deal. Is kind of taking back control of our lives because we kind of immersed ourselves into like this. We this is not a, a a right we have to be in doctoral programs. It's a privilege that many people don't get an opportunity to take. And so with. With that being said, we really immersed in it. And again, we realized that it means more than just our household, what it means for our families, what it means for our students, what it means for people with similar backgrounds than ourselves. Uh, that makes and it now that we're on the other side, of course, it's easier to see the light at the end of the tunnel. I did graduate in May, 
and Thaddeus is about to graduate this coming May. And so to understand that the contract isn't forever is really helpful. Yeah. And the thing is that we really enjoy what we do. So it makes it a little bit hard to find balance. And so how do you really find balance when you enjoy what you do for a living? And so what we hadn't done was try to squelch it. We just kind of went with it. Well, at uh, least not anymore. Yeah, yeah it's, it's who we are. And so a lot of times we'll find ourselves over dinner, uh, a research idea will pop up or something about our students, or we'll be out on a bike ride or we'll be on vacation and we get this sense of inspiration. And so it's, uh, we don't see it as a, as a, as a nuisance. I, I see it as a, a build-in bonus to help us do some great and productive work. Yes. And as a part of that, you've collaborated on research, which is not something a lot of married couples can say, and particularly this early in your academic career. That's true. How did that come about, and what is your collaborative research? You start with the book? Yeah, well, I, I will start that. Uh, I think our initial research interest uh, began with the school-to-prison pipeline, uh, the desperate uh, exclusion of uh, students uh, through discipline out of, uh, in K-12. through And so we, we actually shared that common interest, that social justice theme. And actually, the book that we actually uh, wrote, it started with a, a book chapter uh, for opportunity from Dr. Paula Castro, uh, my mentor, uh, that uh, she had done a piece on medical uh, medical equipment deviance. And she just, she wasn't necessarily, uh, had a level of expertise she was, uh, wanted to have for this particular piece, but she was willing to work with us. And so the chapter ended up uh, becoming a, a, uh, a book. And uh, we ended up uh, working on this and um, so we started this this book actually May of 2016, right? The chapter May of 2016, and so it was about a year or two that we actually worked. We uh, actually started in the fall fall of 2015. Fall of 2015, yeah. Actually, I graduated May 7th, 2016, for uh, my master's, and I was working on the chapter the same day. So this has been a work in progress, and so we 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 both started looking at uh, some of the issues that were coming up. We both have, uh, particularly for this piece, uh, we both have uh, uh, aging parents. Uh, grandparents. Uh, we were seeing some of the things they were dealing with as far as the, the amount they were paying on prescription drugs. We were seeing some of the medical equipment that they have, or things they didn't have access to. Uh, and so we started seeing these things. Um, I mean, personally, my father uh, went for a regular, a regular uh, medical procedure, uh, uh, contracted an infection, and I started seeing how, like, insurance I started seeing how medicines and treatments and how these things uh, take a toll on patients, and not just the patients, but their families as well, going through this through this process. And so, and so, yeah. And I come from an immigrant family, and so just growing up in general, watching communication or the lack thereof, watching the the lack of understanding, just even basic understanding of how systems work, nuances, innuendos, asking the right questions because the right questions get the right answers. Uh, and watching their struggles, uh, I learned a lot just seeing uh, what did or didn't occur uh, for me and for my family in, in real time. With uh, you know, my grandfather has Alzheimer's right now; he had a stroke in, in 2011. And just when things like this happen, that's when everyone wants to assemble, come together, and what should we do? And that's when we also saw what things weren't already in place that should have been. Um, just looking at justice, looking at equity in, 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 in medical care and in the health sphere, not just race, not just socioeconomic status, mm -hmm. uh, but leveling the playing field. And in, in matters of health and equity, it, in, for, for, for most and uh, in, in large part, it can mean the difference between life and death. Yeah, and, and, and particularly with medicine, we, we try to think of things that, that can engage a broader audience, things that 
uh, that are problematic for society as whole as opposed to just a subsect. And so, I mean, the, the healthcare system and medicines and things like that, something that we all have to uh, cross paths with this system at some point in our lives. And so, and we can't be unafraid to ask the questions that we know we need answers to, right? knowing about our doctor's credentials. How many people walk into a doctor's office all the, and have no idea where did this doctor, where was this doctor trained? How do I even know what, what, what credentials my doctor has? How do I know how to access th this information if I need it? And so it's more than just basic information. This is, this is about wellness and care and about knowing for oneself what, what you need. Exactly. So you've started to touch on it, but I want to kind of talk about this in greater detail. When we think about social justice, it seems like medicine isn't always at the forefront of that conversation. It's not something that people associate with social justice very often. Why do you think that is? And how can we go about bringing those two conversations together? I think this is an opportune time because uh, this is the election season. And one thing that we heard, that we're talking to hear a lot in the news or on these cycles are free health care for all or improving the health care system. And I cringe because I'm like, ah, oh, we waste so much money. There's so much fraud. Uh, there are so many unnecessary treatments and surgeries and things like that, that we need to try to figure these things out before we open up the health care for all and things like that. We need to deal with some of the issues that, that we have. Uh, when you hear things um, like uh, almost 70% of cesarean uh, sections, well, uh, procedures are unnecessary, a lot of heart stents, uh, a lot of equipment, a lot of medicines that, that people are taking are not necessarily medically appropriate or have any medical benefit. Um, and I think one reason is the fact that people we were from the day we were born the time we go to the grave, we're taught to trust doctors, right? right? They have specialized knowledge. A lot of the work that they do uh, is behind closed doors. Um, also, I mean, even uh, historically criminologists, uh, Edwin Sutherland, uh, I guess the father or the one who termed the coin a uh, white collar crime, uh, even in, his, in one of his seminal pieces, he, he, he mentioned that uh, medical uh, professionals, physicians in particular, uh, were unlikely, they were more honorable than other professions and, and, and less likely to engage in misconduct. Mm -hmm. Well, we know that he's a little bit off with the Larry Nasser and things with the uh, the U.S. Olympic team and things like that and other stories that we hear. Uh, but I think it's that, it's that trust. It's, it's the fact that they don't have a lot of oversight. Like you have medical boards uh, and things like that, but you'll be surprised that a large share of the doctors, well, don't say a large share, most doctors are honorable. Most doctors are ethical. Uh, but you'd be surprised at the number of doctors who are continuing to practice who are repeat offenders when it comes to misconduct. And so I really feel like some of all those are some of the reasons why uh, the regard that we hold for them, the hero status that they have, the prestige is that we don't question. Uh, the level of trust we have in doctors is, is completely unmatched almost. Right. On the one hand, you have this, this high levels, unadulterated trust and uh, these uh, medical professionals. And on the other hand, fear. People tend to be afraid of the unknown. Uh, something as simple as getting checked every year. People just, they don't want to know their status and they let, they allow that fear to really uh, cripple their, their understanding. Uh, people just don't know even the, the right questions to ask. Uh, my my grand aunt, the one who recently died, mm. just uh, between Thanksgiving and, and, and Christmas, she had stage four leukemia. And when we all got the news, we just found out recently that she had stage four leukemia. She's been going, my mother has been taking her to the doctor, to her clinic uh, appointments, maybe two, three times a month. Why is it that we found that out so, so late? And so 
Yeah, there's the unadulterated trust in these medical professionals, and then there's also just fear and people not wanting to know. Mm -hmm. It seems like there's almost a level of shame involved in these conversations where we're ashamed to talk about our relationship with healthcare or mm -hmm. with right. health issues. How much of that do you think plays into what you're researching? Are you finding that that tends to be kind of a common factor? Absolutely. Um, I will say, well, one main thing I will say, and I, I circle back around, is that I think because how healthcare fraud occurs, uh, how healthcare crime occurs, that most of the time we have no idea that we've been victimized. Right. I, I think that we can speculate and say that when it comes to treatment, that uh, the conversations that we have with our with our doctors or the conversations that we have with our insurance companies uh, may not necessarily be shame, but maybe more so out of ignorance. Is that fair? Maybe I could say it a, a better way, but I think we just don't know that we've been victimized. I think we just don't know of all the issues that are going on. For instance, uh, we don't really have good ways of tracking uh, sanctions by medical boards. We don't have a good way of checking whether uh, doctors have had uh, malpractice suits claimed against them. So some of it may be shame when on a personal level, talking to our doctors and asking the right questions. But a lot of it is is ignorance, that either we're undereducated or we just don't know that we've actually been victimized because of those levels of trust. And then there is shame connected to that because it, people don't tend to want to share when they've been victimized. True. Uh, and in addition to that, just knowing one's own status, it's such a personal sphere and this is personal information and right. Even when someone has the right information and can, could that shame be what's holding them back? Because you don't want to share those types of uh, personal details. That's a good point too when you're talking about like being victimized and not, and not, and not sharing. I mean, that's one reason why over 50% of crime Victims don't haven't been hadn't been reported because one reason being shame or certain thoughts and feelings about uh, the justice system or or big entities in general. And so I think it's a confluence of shame and lack of education, uh, being victimized. When you see like the Larry Larry Nasir case, you saw that it was victim after victim, a long stream of victims. It took one person to get the dominoes rolling. And so there is shame not only in and our lack of understanding, but when you're victimized, that's a traumatic experience to share. You don't want to share that. And so, if, but if it's not shared, then we can't tell these stories to the broader public and deter or, or actually fix these things. So, yeah. And all of this is, of course, connected to larger systemic biases and inequalities. How do you see that carrying over into the day to day practice of medicine? I know that's a big area of what you're researching. Yes, yeah. because we talk a lot about implicit biases Yes, and the fact that it's so subconscious. It's not as if people are walking out of the house intentionally. I'm going to you know, make sure that I tangibly you know, exert some form of bias on at least five people today. <laughs> That's, it usually tends to come out in real time, and, and it's in those moments where you're, you're, you're confronted with it. It's when you have the opportunity to look in the mirror and, and, and really see and, and, and address it, face it or not face it. Uh, but again, it's, it's so hard to encapsulate it because, again, it's something that people usually tend to let it rest Mm -hmm. And because you don't see it, it's not there. I, I'm, I'm not biased. I'm not prejudiced. I, I, you know, how many times if you, you, you never ask anyone that question and get a straight up answer. That's just not how it works. But in the medical sphere, because, again, it can mean the difference between life and death. That's why it's all the more important. Uh, black mothers mm -hmm. in the state of Georgia, the, the death rate, uh, uh, 
enormously, enormously, I can't get the word out. It's so high that it's that high. It's enormously high. And we're, we're talking about the year 2020. We're talking about the fact that we have technologies, we have facilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, this many mothers should not still be dying in childbirth, for example. Uh, even when it comes to uh, treatments. So this is kind of maybe beyond the most supplemental to our research, but as far as when it comes to, uh, to treatments, uh, we know that people of color uh, maybe maybe less likely because of implicit biases or the thought that uh, that people of color can deal with pain uh, more readily than others, they are less likely than whites to be prescribed painkillers. Uh, I just read an article that was just talking about how uh, that may have played a role in the opioid epidemic or the profile of the, a small part in the profile of what we consider to be those who are arrested for opioids as opposed to those it's considered to be what we consider a white drug as opposed to some other drugs in the past like crack marijuana that's been uh, and, and crack cocaine has been associated with blacks. Uh, so even that in itself shows, it, it, some research says that it's because that blacks are less likely to have access to, to, to those things. We also saw that, uh, that minorities and black people are less likely to have access to treatment, uh, whether it's medical treatment, whether it's uh, drug diversion programs through the courts. We, uh, we also noticed that, and, and it's a, a little bit scary because even on the other end of things, we see that when it comes to healthcare fraud, that it's not just about color, it's about uh, women are more likely to be victimized as a, uh, when it comes to uh, sexual assault uh, and certain procedures like cesarean sessions. Uh, we also see that uh, black women, when it comes to the mortality rates for breast cancer, black women uh, are more likely uh, to perish uh, with that diagnosis as others. And so, uh, yes, uh, the medical field is just a microcosm of the issues or broader society. We see the education when it comes to school to prison pipeline. We see the policing. We see the incarceration. So just like any other major system, uh, these things do creep in. So dealing with these massive questions with the person who you are closest to, what is the collaboration like? How do you professionally work together and address these massive problems without, you know, getting frustrated with the work and or getting frustrated with each other. How does how do you keep that collaboration flowing? I mean, just this is it. I mean, I think this is a prime example right here. We'll have most most of our writings come from our conversations. Like we'll have a conversation I'm like, oh shoot, let's let's write this down. Let's type this down. And so we just kind of live in a space of uh, where we're I hate to say we're inspired by these inequities, but it, it, it kind of puts a fire on us because it needs to be done. And, uh, and, it's, and It's a wonderful building. I always talk about our in-house accountability because it exists. Uh, here we are, we're one, we're husband and wife, but we're two different people. So naturally we bring differing perspectives. And so it really just adds to our conversations. It doesn't add to the level of frustration. Uh, it's actually quite the contrary. He's bringing perspectives and uh, ideas that I just can't consider and vice versa and so that only enriches our, our conversations yeah, i even think that even like i've been trained here as a quantitative researcher she's been trained as a wow. qualitative researcher i think that even takes to our personalities and even uh even epitomizes how what we bring to our conversations where uh she looks at the meaning in things where i want just how can i measure it and and and, and you need both of those and so i think it, it paints a more complete picture but one thing when you're dealing with numbers and things, you can kind of lose that human element and realize that you're not just dealing with numbers, you're dealing with people behind the numbers. And one thing that she always reminds me of is that these are these numbers we see, 
these are people and these are people's lives. And so uh, it, it has a constant reminder. Uh, the work can be a little bit morbid sometimes, but I think you work in this space, you tend to end up having a morbid sense of humor as well. But we try to, uh, we try to do some fun things uh, outside of it's no more than just riding our bikes, if it's no more than going bowling, just something where we're doing an activity where we uh, can have less time to talk and think about it. But we just, I mean, we, we enjoy these conversations. Uh, we've been living a life of public service, uh, working in law enforcement, education, and even as youth. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's... And we've worked very hard, too, because our, our relationship, I'd say, is very complementary in nature, but it's no accident. Yeah. We've worked very hard to have this. Yeah, we invest in this first before we invest in the other aspects of it. And so I think the key to just making it through this process, the key to, I think, producing... Well, I want to consider great groundbreaking work. Rock solid it, foundation. It's a foundation that we have here, and it's just so happy that that's just a, a big part of who we are anyway. So where does this collaboration go next? What, what are you working on? What's in the future for your research and for just the two of you? Well, um, Natasha is joining uh, the Criminal Justice Department as a faculty member. Um, I'll be joining in August as a uh, tenure track faculty member in the criminal justice department. Yeah, that's an immediate win. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and so uh, one piece of work that we're working on right now, we do other uh, series of work. One thing is uh, police shootings and racial disparities in the police shootings. And one thing we looked at using Baltimore data, we're looking at if college-educated officers are more or less likely uh, to pull the trigger uh, while on duty or more or less likely to be involved in, in violent conflict. Uh, we were just mentioning before we came here that we were working on uh, doing a presentation probably in the fall, on looking at microaggressions and implicit bias in the medical sphere, so, uh, bringing on some of the things that we talked about here and really just kind of unpacking these things because it really hadn't been unpacked like it, like it really should. Equity and leadership is part of my frame, part of my background, and so looking at women in police leadership is something that we've already been yeah, laying right. the, 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 the frame, I would say, for that. Yeah, that's right. We also end up doing some work, um, doing some racial disparities work, so I'm, I love to pull her in and uh, uh, use her voice as we started seeing some uh, differences, some, um, some intersectional differences in uh, our incarceration rates. Yeah, finding uh, enough to do isn't a problem. <laughs> yeah, and so everything kind of uh, involves around social justice. So we kind of have them lined up. We've been trying to set an agenda for when we finish right. on the other side of things so we can just hit the ground running. And so uh, we're just about at that point. Just so, about there. Yeah, so yeah. And, and enjoying this process, this is something that we talked about uh, when we first met. We didn't know it would take us this path. But something we talked about and we've been... Thing. We didn't meet and decide, okay, we're going to undertake the doctoral journeys. This really, again, this, the school portion began in 2011 and we found ourselves, every time one door opened, that led to the next. One, I would always say one open door begets the next because that's really how it's been happening. The right conversations, aligning with the right people, doing the work and committing to it in right fashion. And the doors, I won't say they open themselves, but they do open. Yeah, and, and, and one thing, I'm glad that she's here at the, the university and also in the CJ programs because uh, what she brings there, uh, criminal justice is one of those fields where these students will be the one making life or death or decisions about people's freedoms. And so one thing we've really been focused on is really get to the students to critically think, really provide them opportunities to make real-time and real-life decision-makings, and really prepare, preparing them for what they're going to meet out um, on the streets. Some will be police officers, some are going to work in corrections, some will be judges, uh, but really trying to uh, build that ground-based knowledge, that baseline knowledge for them, and, and, and to tell them what to expect, but also make them mindful of their implicit biases, make them mindful of the disparities, make them mindful of the, uh, the social, social geographic uh, factors that influence everything we see to think outside of what they just see, but to think 
much broader and in, in, in a much broader system and social context. So we're just really excited about being here at a policy school, excited about being a CJ, excited about about. Especially right, coming from the other side of the tracks on prior yeah. to Park Place, I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, so we're just uh, elated. Uh, we happen to have, have this opportunity just to talk to you all, just kind of share our story and just really share the importance of social justice, share the importance of really not just talking about disparities, but really unpacking it, uh, really doing empirical work so we can have evidence-based policies uh, to help uh, reduce some of these, uh, these gaps that we see and, and try to make things more equitable for everybody. You've inspired one more question in me. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, Great. I'm going to force you to answer a question separately. So can you each tell me what is the most inspiring thing about the other as an academician or as a researcher? Let me just preface this by saying, you know, Jamaicans are known for their work ethics. <laughs> I'll say that because as a proud Jamaican, that's something, your, your worth is your work. And I don't know. My grandfather came from Jamaica in 1967. My grandmother in 1968, he worked in Canada back and forth, and he did that weekly. And aside from my grandfather, the, the, the driving force behind our family being here in the United States of America at, at, you know, at all, I don't know anyone whose work ethic, I don't know anyone who can outperform you. <laughs> the strongest work ethic I've ever seen, and this is me watching you with my own two eyes. Wow, well, um, I'm not to follow that up, but I would probably say, and I may be still looking at your grandmother, but uh, she's courageous. Like, she's not afraid of anything, right? Uh, maybe when she should be. <laughs> uh, but it's, it, it's inspiring to, to see someone who's not afraid to ask those tough questions to anybody. It's inspiring to see someone who's willing to think outside the box, who's willing to go above and beyond is just inspiring for someone to step on the front lines and, and put their reputation and name and, and, and face on the line for the sake of social justice. So just being courageous and 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 and, and not being afraid. I, I got learned from her not to be not to be afraid of the word no. Like basically, she taught me if if you don't ask, if you don't try, it's no anyway. And so when I heard that, like no, what do I have to lose? So that's her courageousness is definitely the most inspiring uh, aspect. Thank you. Well, thank you, Thaddeus and Natasha, for sitting down with us. We're so thrilled to have you at the Andrew Young School, and congratulations on a recent doctorate and a pending doctorate. Yes, 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 yes. as I get to work. Right. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. For more information about Natasha and Thaddeus Johnson, visit aysps.gsu.edu slash criminal-justice-criminology. The Andrew Young School podcast is produced by Taylor Olmsted and edited by Carlisa Johnson, with production assistance from Jennifer Giratano. Our executive producer is Ivani Raval. We are a production of Georgia State University's Andrew Young School of Policy Studies, located in downtown Atlanta, Georgia. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to leave a review for us in your podcast app of choice. To learn more about the Andrew Young School, visit us online at aysps.gsu.edu or follow us on social media at aysps.gsu. And we'll be back next month interviewing another policy thought leader from the Andrew Young School of Policy Studies at Georgia State University.